We are in part 17 of our Isaiah series called the Wake Up series. And this morning's message is called Wake Up to Idols in Your Bed. There's something creepy about that. It's supposed to be creepy. Uh, we are in chapter 44. I'm going to have you turn there in, in just a moment. But I want to begin with some concepts about the issue of idolatry. And the reason why I'm going to go off on this for a little while is that many of us have been in the church for some time. We go, yeah, 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 I know that idolatry thing about how in the old world they had little idols and, and nowadays it's whatever stands between us and God. Yeah, 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 I get that. No, if you do not internalize and understand this is relevant to us, you're going to miss the power of the passage we're about to read. Therefore, I don't feel comfortable advancing into Scripture until we have a foundation idea. We need to all feel it before we start to read it. Therefore, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the obvious idols of the ancient world. Back in the ancient world, people were very open about the idea that they needed help. Uh, they were very clear about the idea that they would... Hey, my crops aren't working. Things aren't going awesome at work. I can't fix it. I've done my best. I need help from an outside source. They would literally gather up a offering, go to a visible pagan temple in town. Everyone could see them. They would pour out their offering before their gods and they would say, I need help in this. If they wanted a relationship, if they wanted this, if they wanted that, they were willing to put out something in order to manipulate a system to say, I crave that and I need help. Some of them even fashioned idols out of wood, metal, stone. They would put them in their homes to say, this is a representation of how desperate I am in need. They would then pray to those idols and say, can I have some help? I'll do whatever it takes. Now, here's what's rather ironic about it. Idolatry in our modern age has not lessened one bit. So where are all the idols? Now, you can go to other countries and other parts of the world, and they will put shrines out on the corners. They will put shrines in their home and make it obvious. But we here in modern-day America have been told that we are independent. We are told that we are not to need anyone else. And as a matter of fact, the very idea that we would have to go to anyone else or manipulate any system to get anything, we find humiliating. So what we have done with our idolatry is we just hid it in our closet. Oh, we're still just as idolatrous as any other nation, but we just won't admit weakness. So we hide it. We keep it away. We lock it in our minds. We lock it in our hearts. We carry our idols along with us. If you go into our homes, you just have to look with a different lens and you'll see they're everywhere. So what is our society tell us is valuable? Because that's really what we're picking up. Whenever... Uh, you go into a new country, you pick up the gods of the territory. Well, we are in America, so what are the gods of America that we have picked up on? Because I'm going to tell you, we bought it hook, line, and sinker. We're all in. Whatever they tell us is valuable, we soak it in, we make it ours. So what is our society telling us is valuable? You go, oh, I don't know, Lance, that's a very heavy sociological question. I don't have time to assess the data. Let me tell you how easy this is. Watch TV. 
Why? Because the advertising agencies have done all the hard work. They already know what you crave because if they can trigger that, you'll buy their product. You don't have to go any further than watching commercials. So let's talk about it. What sells in our society? That is what we crave the most. That is our most national gods. So let me ask you this. What sells in America? Drugs, sex, youth. We all tracking on this? Let's go through them. I got them right here. Sexuality. Does every sexuality sell on TV? Does committed, long-term, fulfilling, does that sell? No, it doesn't. Actually, it's a very specific kind. It is a fantasy sexuality that has no strings attached to it and no long-term. That is the type of sexuality that sells. What else sells? Well, how about beauty, right? If they, they can trigger you to buy anything, if they can make you afraid of not being beautiful or afraid of aging, as long as there is this concept that you are not going to be as beautiful as the people on TV, because TV people are always beautiful. And what they're trying to get you to understand is that it's actually the whole world. You're the only one missing out. Here's what's interesting. We would all love to think that we are so intelligent that we make purchases based on their usefulness. We do not. Or that we uh, make purchases that make sense because it's high quality. We do not. We make purchases based on whether they can trigger our craving needs. That's, we are that sad as a society. They know what buttons to push. And you will buy their product. What else sells? Fun and entertainment. We are taught that the world is to be used. We need to get out there and use the world as much as we can. Travel everywhere, use up everything. If we only had the money to be able to get there, we could have fun and entertainment all the time because all that whole slow business of building relationships and investing in family, that's for losers. We all want to do the fun thing. Shouldn't we all be having a great time all the time? That's what we're told. Does money sell? Absolutely. If you get a whole bunch of money, you're going to be satisfied. You can just get what you need, right? Maybe not. One that's always intriguing to me, one of the major selling points for advertising is they play off our desire to belong. Here's the deal. If all the guys at work have the new iPad mini, what are you going to talk about? You're left out. Ladies, if you are three cycles late in fashion, who's the outside one? Do you understand how much they'll play off that? Wait, everybody else has this. You have, you're not part of the group. What's wrong with you? Don't you need to buy our product? Everybody's utilizing our product. Why would you want to be left out? That's horrifying. Then everybody, oh, they might talk about you. Do you understand how easy it is to sell a product? The most ironic thing about belonging is that it's found in Jesus Christ. It's found in his family and it's free. But that doesn't sell. In defining idols in the 21st century, I use a quote from Tim Keller's book called Counterfeit Gods. It is primarily about the issue of idolatry. He defines idolatry and counterfeit gods like this. It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, what, to give you what only God can give. You can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children. It could be career 
and making money or achievement in critical acclaim or saving face in social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable positions, circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in a Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I will feel that my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I will feel significant and secure. Simply put, an idol is anything that is taking God's spot. Here's where we run into our first challenge. If I was to hand out a sheet of numbers 1 to 10, and I said, you guys, let's think about this for a moment. What is the most important things in life Many of you, especially because you're in church, would put God as number one. Well, God's most important. All right. Is that accurate? Is that played out in your life? Here's how you can find out. An idol is whenever it clashes up against God who wins. You understand what I'm talking about? God says, I don't want you to do that. If you do that, we now have an idol. It is every form of disobedience. It is every form of sin. Every bit of sin is rooted in idolatry. What is our greatest idol of America? Self. Self means that we get a chance to tell God when we will follow him and when we will not follow him. When two things clash and one wins, it is the master. So are we chasing after God? Remember this. It is not the thing that's the idol. It's why the thing is so important. The reason why I make that distinction is because many idols are good things. How in the world, you're going to hear me talk a lot about children being our idols. How can a child be a bad thing? It's not a bad thing. Children are wonderful, amazing gifts from God. How could, how could that be bad? They are not bad. But why are you so interested in your children? Why do you do what you do with your children? Why do you provide what you provide for your children? These are things that are issues of idolatry. I have a series of three questions. You can ask yourself, if you write down notes, write down these three questions. They're not very long. Three questions to find out what the idols are in your life. Right? These are just obviously sample questions. Uh, There's a million questions you can ask. These are three that that help me understand mine. The first one was most eye-opening for me because of my personality. So uh, maybe this one will help you out. Ready? And I'm going to put these all in the, the first person so you can write them down for you to answer them later. Where does my mind tend to wander most? Where does my mind tend to wander most? It means what do I dwell on? What do I think about? What do I dream about? That one was always the most revealing for me. When you are exhausted or beat up or tired or frustrated or hurt or angry, where does your mind go? That will likely be your idol. Because you're running to something for comfort and it's not God. What is your escapism? What is the, when you get a break from work, where do you always tend to go? What is that genre? Is it always the, man, if I could just retire and when I retire and man, retirement would really, and if I could just have a break in the retire, why is that such a big deal to you? What, well, I could finally get a break from, from what? 
from this work and this situation and the stress. All right, so what are you valuing so much? Why, when you finally get space, does your mind not drift over to the Lord? It drifts to retirement. So you can be alone and not have anybody put any pressure on you. Do you value comfort? Do you value being left alone? Do you, what do you value? What is loaded in that? Second question, where do I spend most of my time and energy? Where do I spend most of my time and energy? The question behind that is what are you trying to build? We're trying to build some kingdoms. Where are you spending all your time and energy? Are you always with friends? Where you can't be alone. Are you always building a network so that you always have some type of comfort and peace so that if anything ever goes wrong, there's somebody that you're going to turn to? Where are you putting all your energies? Is it always into a ministry? Why are you constantly overloading yourself by serving here, 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 here? What are you looking for? What are you trying to build? Does that give you value? Is that your identity? That is a God. That is an idol. The last question perhaps is the one that is most misleading because we all think that we can escape on this one. So I'll lead you through that a little bit more. Last one, number three. What do I spend my money on? What do I spend my money on? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We invest in what we love. Where are you spending your money. Now here's where most of us shut down. We go to the obvious answers and go, Ooh, at least that's not a problem for me. Right? Cause here's the obvious ones, right? Addictions. If there's an addiction and it doesn't matter what the addiction is, you can go, man, that might be an idol in my life. I spent all my money on, and then you start naming it drugs, alcohol, right? Coffee, cigarettes, right? All these things. What am I spending all my money on? Any addictions? Is it sex? Is it this? Is it that? What is your addiction? Those are the obvious ones. So if you don't have an obvious addiction, you go, well, I'm pretty good at that one. Uh, The other ones are extravagant purchases. Those are the easy ones, right? Pleasure stuff where you're always shopping. It's always clothes. It's always this. It's always the newest technology. Those are all easy answers. And if you can find a way to escape out of those, you assume that you don't have an idle problem on what you're spending your money on. But here's actually the questions that I think are more important. If I was to ask all of you, I would probably say 95 to 98% of you would answer that question. What do I spend most of my money on? Regular life stuff, like boring stuff. You would answer that way. Okay, so let's talk about your regular boring stuff. Gas money, right? Do y'all spend a lot of money on gas? Man, gas is expensive, right? And it seems like the cars just take up all this gas. Here's my question that underlies that. Why do you drive the car that you drive? And where are you going? Because here's what's intriguing. Your gas money, if you're always trying to go somewhere so you don't miss out, if it's always this, I got to go, 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 can't be alone, got to make sure I'm in here. What if someone's doing something without me and I always want to be available and I want to be the one that everybody turns to and I want to be, and I'm constantly going to my kids and going to my grandkids and going to this and going to that. Why? Are you doing it for good reasons? Are you doing it because your identity is locked into you being there, the one that's always there? 
and that's now what everyone thinks of you and that's the mask that you wear? Why are you always going somewhere? Why is there no peace? Why can't it just be you and Jesus? What about food? Man, I spent all my money on groceries. Spent all my money on going out to eat. Why? What do you want there? What is filling you? Why is it? Is it that at home there's all this groceries because you want to be a great hostess? As a matter of fact, you don't want to just be a great hostess. You want to be the great hostess. You put out the spread. You always have everybody over, so they fawn over you. Oh my gosh, nobody throws a party like you. All of a sudden, your bill is sky high because you need approval. Are you eating out all the time? For me, I got just like a wretched reason why I eat out all the time. My, my personality, I love variety. And I, there's no way you can buy enough groceries to constantly make something new. So I go to restaurants so that I have new taste. And I'm addicted to this constant variation and this uh, something new, something new, something new all the time. Every time I go to a restaurant, except for a few, I'm always ordering something brand new off the menu. Because I just want something new. And you begin to see the idol suddenly rise up. Is food your comfort? Is it the thing that satisfies? Is it the thing that makes you... What about your mortgage? Man, all my money goes to my mortgage. Why do you live where you live? Why is your mortgage so high? Well, we're trying to, you know, it's about retirement. We're trying to double up on our payment. Why? I'm not telling you these things are wrong. I'm asking you why. What is your motivation? Why do you got to live in a gated community? Well, Lance, if the zombies attack, how in the world? <laughs> I mean, there's got to be a perimeter line somewhere, right? Goodness sakes, the peasants might revolt. And I just, I will not have that on my watch. Why is so much money going into, why do we live where we live? Is it, why do we drive what we drive that, that when we go down the street, people go, they're successful. Is, is that what we're doing? What are we creating? I understand y'all say that your money is going to boring stuff, but your boring stuff's paying for something. And it's paying to support your idol habit. Okay, let's talk about your kids. One of the greatest idols for many of us are our children. And you go, how could that be? Why are your children involved in so many activities? Well, that's just, just the way it is today. I mean, you can't, that you don't get enough exercise at school, and so they've got to be involved in this. And I want them to be a part of music, and I want to... Are they your status symbol? In your world, do you respect moms? If you respect moms, are you trying to be the best mom? And so all the other moms will come to you because they know you got it all together and your kids are always successful and looking good and everything's right and they have all the right clothes and they're in all the right activities and they're constantly connected and they're going to be all set up for college so they can go to Ivy League. And are we beginning to see, is this have anything to do with the children at all? Or does that have everything to do with you? When we get to this point, this is where we saturate out. <laughs> Lance, if you're going to define it like that, man, everything's an idol. Guess what? Everything's an idol. The pervasiveness of idolatry in America, as I have told you, we drank the Kool-Aid. We are all in. Everything is an idol. Here's a better question. What in your life isn't? an idol because if you drift to that instead of god it has taken his seat 
and we got to get it out of his seat. Why can we not dwell on God alone? Here's what's intriguing. Many of us that have good hearts, and I believe that is the majority of this congregation. Now I'm totally biased and I think all my kids are better than everybody else's, right? (laughs) The majority of this congregation has, has brilliant hearts and here's what you will do. Lance, hold up. When I have a need, I go to God first. It's just that when he fails to come through, I just have a backup plan. Don't get me wrong. I prayed about it, right? You're single. You want somebody in your life. I prayed about it. Seriously. I mean, I waited like three weeks. God didn't come through. I gave him a time frame. I was very clear with him. He never showed up. So what's interesting is now I just realized there are other opportunities and methods by which I can find a partner. I see. Not only are we relying on things that can't really get us what we want, but even the things that we really want aren't the right things. The bottom line to all of this is the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. What foolishness are we relying on outside of God? What foolishness are we relying on outside of God? I think we're all mature enough to understand that things like money can't buy everything. I think we know that theoretically, but I don't know if that's ever saturated into our heart. Pick it up in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 1. In our remaining time, we are just going through 44 and then the first 13 verses of 45. Um, because it's, uh, it was how it's broken up. Unfortunately, this is a very poor chapter break. The first five verses of this chapter actually, I believe, belong to the last section. So I'm only going to paraphrase for them. It is one more reminder that while God is disciplining Israel for their sin, he's still telling them they have a bright future, he will restore them, and even while he's giving him a spanking, he has tears coming down to his eyes saying, when can we get beyond this discipline phase and we can go on vacation and enjoy it again? God's heart is so restorative. God's heart is so redemptive. He wants to move forward. He wants to love on his kids, but we just keep wanting other things more than him. And so he's going to remind them why they're being disciplined. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the one that bought you back from slavery, the Lord of hosts, that is the warrior God, the God that is the commander of the armies of God, that is the angelic host. He says, quote, I am the first and I am the last. We know that more commonly as the Alpha and Omega. Who else said that? Jesus in Revelation. It's almost like if God said it and Jesus said it, it's almost like Jesus is God. Oh, that's right. Jesus is God. Right? I am your everything. I start I finish. I'm all in between. There is nothing in this world that will satisfy beyond me, God says. Therefore, I am to be your everything. You are to come to me first and I will divvy out and I will let the rest of the world be able to fill in those gaps. Beside me, there is no other God. There is no other deity. There is no other all-powerful being. Who is like me, God says. Let him proclaim it. What, is there any other challenger? Look, I'm not seeing anybody. 
Verse 8. Is there a God beside me? I know not any. There is no rock other than me. Uh, real quick side note, uh, and this is just a tangent. Every time I hear the phrase, go to, God is your rock, every time I picture the prudential insignia. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about? That's the rock of Gibraltar. It's the big, huge, tall rock. And what's funny is I've always had a hard time tying into that emotionally because I'm like, what would I do with that? I don't, you know, because you always go, well, you got to run to the rock. I'm like, there's no caves. I can't hide anywhere. I certainly don't want to go on top. That's scary up there. And I don't know what to do with the rock. God is my rock. What am I going to do with that rock? I'm not going to build my house up there. And I'm, and it was one of those little light bulbs turn on. I'm doing the study on this and it says, can I remind you that it has nothing to do with a large, tall rock? It has, it, it means bedrock. It means solid ground. God is your unmoving foundation. And I was like, oh, well, that's easier. I would build on that. I don't need a prudential rock, but man, I do need solid ground. And you need to, in your mind, shift it a little bit to where you go. When I need security, when I need stability, when I need something I can build my life upon, that is what I'm running to. Is something that won't shift on me. That is God. God's victory is assured because there is no legitimate competitor. You go, well, there's Satan. Satan is not God. Do you understand that if Satan was truly a problem for God, as creator, he would unmake him? You go, what? No, just think about that. God creates reality. He will unmake and erase from reality any true competitor. Let's say there was a competitor, someone that's standing up against God and it was a problem and God unmade him. You would never know because he's unmade. That is how immense and almighty God is. Anything that exists means that it still has practical use for God's purposes. Otherwise, it would be unmade. Verse 9. All who fashion idols, all who make idols, all who worship idols are nothing. Great, that's us. Right? That was your big encouragement for today. <laughs> Chew on this concept. You become what you worship. You become what you worship. The spirit and the heart of what you worship will invade your being. You become what you worship. And the things they delight in do not pay off. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Then he tells this funny story. He said, let me tell you about how idol makers work. They're like blacksmiths or they're, you know, like carpenters. They go in and they have to plant a tree that I have to build. They plant a tree. It grows up. They cut down the tree. They start working. They're sweating. They're getting tired. They need to eat. They're all weak. They're fashioning all this stuff. They're cutting it out. They use half the wood to make a god and the other half they use to cook their meal. Does anyone think this is stupid? Then he says this. Look, verse 19. No one considers... Nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. And I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And I'm going to make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Here's the point. If you made it, it's ultimately not higher than you. We all good on that? Let's try it another way. If you made it, it's not that awesome. There you go. That was for the younger generation. All right, here we go. Verse 21. Remember these things, my people, 
Don't just let them drift out of your mind. You got to lock in who God is so you can know who you are. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I don't abandon my own. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. So return to me. I'm the one that bought you back from slavery. I've laid all the foundation for you to come home. I just want you to come home. Stop choosing everyone else other than me. May all of creation praise God for this. Let's go to verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. I paraphrase the rest of it. He says, I'm the one who dictates the future. I can confound anyone that thinks they know. And then he drops six prophecies that will be fulfilled within the next 150 years. Can we throw up the map real quick? It's just in our remaining time. As I'm talking about this, I need you to just have a little bit of a reference point. Because I'm going to drop history on you in our last five minutes. Watch this. Chapter 45, verse 1, thus says the Lord to his Messiah, to Cyrus. What? Messiah is Jesus. Messiah is not Cyrus. Messiah, anointed one. What do you mean? Remember I told you last week that the term servant had multiple applications because it means God's chosen person to carry out his will on earth. So is Messiah. The deliverer that God will choose for his people to carry out his will. God selected a man by the name of King Cyrus. King Cyrus the Great was loved by all. He came to power for the Persian Empire in 559 BC. That is 150 years after Isaiah would have died. Isaiah is writing this. You understand the prophecy power right here. 150 years, the guy is named and everything about him. This is one of the most stunning prophecies in scripture. He came to power for the Persian empire in 559 BC. 10 years later, he conquered the Medes and became king over a brand new empire called the Medo-Persian empire. If you ever read Daniel, it talks about this guy. King Cyrus. Ten more years later, in 539 BC, he took over the Babylonian capital. Right there, Babylon became his home place. And then in 538, he issued a decree that the Jews who had been in captivity for 40 years at that time could go home, rebuild their temple, and rebuild their land. 30 years into that, all of a sudden we run up to 444 BC and we end up finding a man by the name of Nehemiah, who because of what King Cyrus said, is allowed to go back and rebuild the city. All that was done through a pagan king that didn't even know who God was. To my anointed one, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and loose the belts of the kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that's hidden treasure that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Interestingly enough, there are a hundred gates in Babylon. Cyrus dried up a river, crawled underneath one, and the main gates that were protection weren't even locked. 
They were opened. Well, that's interesting. Why is he doing all this? Cyrus, do you really think it's about you? No, of course it's not about you. Look at verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you don't know me. I'm the Lord. There is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I equip you, though you don't know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is, no, there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being. I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. In the end, in his writings, King Cyrus gave all credit to Marduk, the god of the Babylonians. He didn't even know who God is. Now, were there times that he had these revelations? God is real. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he got to interact with Daniel and all that cool stuff. But ultimately, he didn't even give God all the credit. Does God really use pagan leaders? Who did Joseph work for? Pharaoh, pagan guy. Who did Daniel work for? Every one of his guys were pagan. And God used them to protect the Hebrew people, release the Jews, protect the Jews. God still uses pagan leaders. That is why in 1 Timothy 2, he said, I urge you that prayers and intercessions be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives and be godly and dignified in every way. Hear me out. If you have a problem with any current government system and you're not praying, keep your mouth shut shut. Our job is to intercede. Why is there no movement there? Is it because God's people are not praying and we're spending all our time complaining? Pick it up in verse eight. May the earth spring forth with what God built into it. Verse nine, woe to him who wrestles with him who formed him. Does the clay say to him who formed it? What are you making? Your work doesn't even have handles. Do you understand the sheer embarrassment of this? The clay is like, that's stupid. I wanted to be a bowl. Why are you making me a cup? No cool people are cups, right? God's like, well, actually, I have a whole bunch of bowls. I know. I want to be a bowl. Well, actually, I need a cup. Well, if I'm a cup, then all the bowls are going to be like, you're not a bowl, you're a cup. Okay, are, you, are you seriously arguing with me? You know what? Watch it. I just melted you down. Check that out. Oh, look, now you don't have a mouth to talk. Oh, that's a drag. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, ask me the things to come. What are you going to command me concerning my children? The work of my hands. I made the earth. I created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. I commanded all their host. And yes, I stirred up him, King Cyrus, in righteousness. I will make his ways level. He will build my city and set my exiles free, but not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Let me tell you how the future is going to go. In 150 years, I'm going to have a guy show up and he's going to let you go, even though there's no economic benefit to him whatsoever. No, it's not his idea. It's my idea. And I will tell you, I'll call all my shots. There's no slop in my work. I will tell you exactly what is going to occur, when it's going to occur. And watch this. This guy doesn't even exist yet. I will name him by name. I will tell you what he will do. I will give him the city and he will protect my people. And all of you will know that I am the only God. As we close out, there's a short video about this subject drives at home, but it's going to close with a challenge. And I want to highlight this for you in the community hall, along with the ability of the desserts is a cross 
And in there are pieces of paper for you to nail your idol to that cross. Now I know how it's going to work. You're going to write it out and it's going to be embarrassing and you'll be looking over your shoulder. Anybody looking at it? Right? And you're going to fold it so no one can see it, right? I want you to write it down. Some of us are tactile learners. I need you to own it. You write down the idol of your life. You fold it over and you nail it to the cross. What that is is a symbolic prayer of saying, Jesus, take it from me. This is competing for your attention. Lord, it may be a good thing. It may be a bad thing. All I know is he's sitting in your seat. God, set me free. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for a wonderful walk through your word. May you change us by your spirit, by your power. God, we are embarrassingly longing for everything but you. Would you change that? Would you give us new eyes? Would you give us a new perspective and worldview that we might see you as the only? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.